0: Okay, if you'd like to open up your Bibles to Mark, Mark's Gospel, chapter 9. Mark's Gospel, chapter 9, and verse 30 to 37. They went on there, sorry, they went on from there and passed through Galilee. And when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent for on the way, they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the 12 and said to them, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them and taking him in his arms he said to them whoever receives one such child in my name receives me and whoever receives me receives not me but him who sent me this is the word of the Lord and as we come to the word now Father God we pray that you would work powerfully supernaturally in our hearts as we hear it we thank you that this part of the service is every bit as much worship as when we sing lord we pray you would bring forth fruit in our lives from this message amen so in this message today we are going to be hearing how it is that we receive the father How many of you want to be receptive of the Father in your lives? This message is all about receiving the Father. This message is about greatness. It's about a definition of what it is to be great. And so those two things you're going to learn today is... How to be great in the eyes of God and how to receive the Father in your life daily. Now, this passage today marks the last passing through Galilee of Jesus and his disciples. Galilee's been the, the center, the focal point of Jesus's whole ministry, hasn't it? The whole of the book of Mark so far has more or less been centered in Galilee, in Capernaum, in Bethsaida, all these places. And today, we are actually seeing the last time that Jesus and his disciples pass through Galilee. He won't return to Galilee until after he rises from the dead. He has now set his face, as the Bible says, towards Jerusalem. Now, this journey and Jesus' destiny, his death, his resurrection. This is clearly in the forefront of Jesus' mind as they're passing through. It says that he, he, he's passing through Galilee but he doesn't want anyone to know. He doesn't want anyone to know that they're there. He doesn't want a crowd. He doesn't want to make Galilee a focal point again. He, he knows what needs to happen now and he's reminding his apostles of his destiny in this passage he says he was teaching his disciples the son of man is going to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him and when he is killed after three days he will rise so this act this job that Jesus has to do is, is in the forefront of his mind and he wants to shut out all of the distractions so that he can pursue the plan of God for his life how many of you understand how important it is to shut out distraction when you know you've got something to do I'm a king of distraction I can find multiple ways to distract myself when I know what I need to do but we can learn from Jesus here we can learn from Jesus he is passing through a region doubtless there were many people who needed healing in that region there were many people who probably needed a touch from jesus in that area but he didn't want anyone to even know he was there because his focus was completely zeroed in on what god had for him in jerusalem and so i think this is again just a an encouragement for all of us which is we need to learn to shut out distraction (laughs) Just like Jesus, we need to learn to say no. We need to learn not to be always directed by the needs of others. Sometimes in life, our resources get tapped, don't they, by need. And there's a time when that's good. There's a time when that's right. uh, That we should be available to the needs of those around us. But equally, Jesus shows us that there is a time when we actually need to learn to say no and to say yes to what it is that God has for us. So this is the second time that Jesus has told his disciples that he's going to be killed. It's the second time he tells them he's going to rise again. The first time was in Mark eight thirty one, and you remember in that passage when Jesus says that he was going to suffer many things be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. Peter actually took him aside, didn't he? Remember that in chapter eight, Peter took Jesus aside and he began to rebuke him and say, no, far be it from you, Lord. And so the first time that Jesus tells them what he's going to do, the focus is on suffering, on suffering, the focus is on what he's gonna have to endure. He's gonna suffer many things. He's going to be rejected and he's going to die and be resurrected. But this time, the focus is slightly different. The focus is slightly different in this time that he talks to them about his destiny. And actually, this is one of the interesting things about reading the Bible in the original language. um, Is that you pick up things that you won't necessarily see in an English translation. And hidden in the Greek of this saying that Jesus says, there are echoes of Old Testament prophecy that you just, you don't really see in the English, but is there. So in the Greek, we have this kind of, we have this force that's just not not always very easy to translate into English because Greek is a complex language that is not always simple to, to translate. And... Most English translations translate what Jesus says, something like, the son of man is going to be delivered up, that's in the ESV, or is the son of man is going to be betrayed, and that's in the NLT. And these translations are correct, like you can render it that way. Um, But the word that they're translating, delivered up, or betrayed, is a very, very interesting word. I want to take a moment just to do a bit of a Greek word study with you because it just interested me. But it's a it's a verb. The verb is paradidotai, paradidotai. And it's a present passive verb, present passive, okay? So passive, do you know what passive means? Mum, you're, you're in English. But what, passive is basically there's a there's something being done but it's not clear who's doing the action okay so um, I might say oh Dave the battery in my guitar has run out because it has been unplugged it's not clear who's unplugged it but it's been unplugged that's a past tense kind of passive verb so there's something in the bible called a divine passive say divine passive this is cool. So this is when in the Bible there's a passive verb like being delivered up. It's not clear who's delivering up. But in the, in the divine passive, what's actually happening is there's no obvious subject. It's not obvious that God is doing the delivering up. But that's what you're supposed to read into it. It's a divine passive. And what's interesting is that this verb gets used in the Old Testament as well. And guess where? It gets used in Isaiah 53. You believe that? You know Isaiah 53 which talks about the suffering servant bearing on his shoulders the iniquity of all? Well, this same verb form gets used there too. And so this verb paradidatai is hinting at God being the one that's actually doing the delivering up. And what's also interesting is that in the Greek, this verb, being delivered up, is in the present tense. It's not in the future. So in the ESV, it says the son of man will be delivered up. But actually, if you're going to be really literal with the Greek, it's this. The son of man is being delivered into the hands of men. The King James gets it pretty right. The son of man is being like actually now when Jesus is saying this he's saying I am presently being delivered up into the hands of men doesn't that remind you of something in John chapter 3 guess where that verbs found John three sixteen. for God so loved the world that he edoken which is from paradidotai he gave his only son. So this is talking about God the Father delivering up his son into the hands of sinful men. Jesus says in John ten eighteen he says, No one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again this charge i've received from my father and i think the correct translation here is is being delivered up i think if this really is a divine passive like it's actually saying that god's delivering christ up to the hands of men then i don't think betrayed is the right idea i don't think betrayed gets it because the father doesn't betray the son does he the trinity worked together in the cross did you know that this is important theology isn't it because As soon as we get the three persons of the Trinity wanting different things at the cross, we know that we've gone somewhere wrong in our theology. If we think that the Father has the Son crucified against the Son's will, we're going wrong, aren't we? (laughs) The three persons of the Trinity work together to accomplish salvation at the cross. So Jesus is speaking of his being delivered up by the Father, I believe, at this point. Jesus also speaks of his death, doesn't he? He says, I'm going to be killed and that I will rise again after three days. And Mark says that the disciples actually didn't understand. They didn't understand this. In Matthew's gospel, it says that they were deeply grieved. Now here's a question. How is it, That The disciples could both be grieved about what Jesus is saying but at the same time not understand what he's saying. Isn't that a contradiction? Surely if you don't understand something you can't be grieved about it because you don't get it. So how can the two gospels both be telling the truth? Well John Chrysostom who's a church father, he says this if they didn't understand how could they be sorrowful they were sorrowful because they were not altogether ignorant they knew he was soon to die for he'd continually told them about it but just what his death might mean they they didn't understand clearly they did not see that there would be innumerable blessings from it they didn't see there'd be a resurrection and I think John Chrysostom's right I think they knew the facts, they knew Jesus was going to die, but they didn't understand what that would mean. And they didn't see the resurrection as well as being something that was gonna change everything for them. They, they didn't understand that. And I think as well there was maybe a little bit of a selfish element to it. I think the disciples still hoped that this journey that they'd been on with Jesus was gonna keep going. I think they really genuinely were grieved that Jesus was gonna leave them and they're thinking well if you're gonna die Jesus what's gonna to happen to us what about us Could, I mean I can relate to that I can relate to that they've been three years in this pattern of life with Jesus you know eating and drinking with him and traveling with him and it's become their identity and, and now Jesus is saying I'm gonna die this is hard for them well Lord what about us I can relate to that there's change And they don't understand and they're grieved by it. What are we going to do, Jesus? And I think there's something of the way that the disciples are feeling in all of us. When sometimes God delivers us up into a season of of challenge or difficulty, we can react exactly like the disciples. We can get confused. We don't really always understand and on a level we're grieved by it but here I think there's a secret for any of you here who have been through a difficult season or are going through a difficult season I think there's something for you to hold on to because what we need to do is meditate on the cross we need to meditate on what the cross accomplishes because in Christ's suffering and in his death came life right? out of those two horrendous things, all of the things he has to endure came life, a way of salvation for the whole world. His suffering became joy to the world, didn't it? And I believe this, that that, that no Christian is ever allowed to suffer by God for no reason. Do you believe that? God's never gonna allow you to suffer for nothing. There's always going to be purpose in it. And what's more is that through the cross, that the greatest level of suffering ever, the most unjust in, in moment in history, good things came. Good things came. I believe that God brings life from the very places that we experience suffering. Those places, those painful places in your life, become a source of hope. They become a source of strength and blessing for those around you. So, have you got scars? Have you got scars today? Have you got places where you've been hurt? Those places are the very places where God is going to use you to bless others around you. I think that's a wonderful thing. It's what I focus on. I focus on the cross. If I have to walk through a confusing season now they arrive at Capernaum and it says they go into the house and that's likely the, the base that Jesus did all his ministry from so Peter's house probably and the disciples on the way into Capernaum they've been having this rather heated exchange been arguing and as they get inside Jesus turns around and he says what, what were you discussing what were you talking about on the way and what Mark says is that they kept silent. They kept silent, it says. <laughs> I think this is incriminating. Because it, it points to the fact that the disciples, they knew what they'd been discussing. They knew exactly what they'd been talking about. And they knew that Jesus probably knew as well. <laughs> and they knew it probably wasn't a good look for them. It wasn't going to go over well. And this this one really strikes to my core because I'm like, what conversations am I having that I would instantly feel embarrassed about if Jesus was to turn up and say, what were you talking about, Graham? I I wonder what conversations that you have that come to mind now where you think, oh, yeah, I'm not sure I'd want to sit down with Jesus and talk about that one. I think it's a good lesson, you know, that he's in every conversation. He's there, he's with us. And it certainly helps me to, to be more careful sometimes in my, in my talk. Matthew 12, 36 says, I tell you, on the on the day of judgment, people will give account for every every careless word they speak. Wow. Brothers and sisters, how much do we need grace? How much are we reliant on the righteousness of Christ and not our own righteousness today yeah Amen. Mark tells us what they had been talking about Mark reveals the secret he says they had been discussing who was the greatest and actually Luke goes further and Luke says they were arguing about it this was something they were actually getting heated over who's the greatest and this is coming just after Jesus has told them that he's going to suffer he's going to die he's got a humble ending And what are they like? Well, who's going to be the greatest out of all of us? (laughs) And we look at that and we think, gosh, what a rabble. What a bunch. You know, if I was there, I wouldn't have made the same mistakes. Whenever I start thinking that, I think, not so fast, Graham. Not so fast. You probably would. It's human nature to desire greatness, isn't it? From the day we're born, we, we desire to be influencers. We desire to make a difference, to be great. And... What Jesus does is he doesn't tell them, guys, being great is a bad thing. He doesn't say, I don't want you to even think about being great. He doesn't do that. He redefines greatness for them. He redefines it. He flips it on its head. And it says that he sat down. Isn't this interesting? When Jesus wanted to teach his disciples, he didn't stand up behind one of these things. He sat down with them. And this is a theme right the way through Mark's gospel. Do you know all the way through Mark there's this theme that theologians talk about called the inside-outside theme. The inside-outside theme. Because in Mark's gospel consistently what you find is that when Jesus comes inside with someone and starts to talk to them. That's his inner circle. That's who he's, when he's talking to friends. And when he's outside that's when he's ministering. To those he doesn't necessarily know. I want you to know today. If you know Jesus. You're on the inside. You're on the inner circle. And Jesus sits down to talk with his friends. He doesn't lecture. He doesn't preach. He sits. Now that for me. Is such a blessing. Because the disciples have just let themselves down. Haven't they? They've let themselves down. They know they've let themselves down. They know they've been foolish. But Jesus sits down. He says, come over here, let's talk. I want to encourage you today, if you know you've badly messed up this week, you know you've got a relationship with Jesus, but you know you fell down, you stumbled, you did something you shouldn't have. And sometimes the enemy gets in in those moments, doesn't he? And he says, Jesus will never welcome you back now. He's got nothing for you but judgment. Well, look at this. Jesus sits down and calls his friends to him. Always remember that, brothers and sisters. That's the kind of Lord that we serve. Humble, not always beating us up over our failings, but calling us to come and sit with him. So he sits down, he calls the 12 and he says to them, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. You catch that? It's a redefinition of greatness. That's This is perhaps the most important teaching on greatness, well it definitely is, in the world, in world history. This sets the people that belong to Jesus apart from the world. People's understanding of greatness is going to be different in the church of Jesus Christ than it is in the world. Do you agree? Jesus sets a different standard of greatness for you and I. We see greatness differently, he doesn't tell us don't be great, he just redefines it. But here's what's happening in the world, the world's idea of greatness, of what it means to be an important person, a successful person is creeping into the church. I've heard so many stories this year already of churches falling apart because of abuse. Because people who should know Jesus' teaching on greatness have sold out and said it doesn't work. We're going to go to the business realm to get some ideas about how to be great. And they get a bit of success. They grow their church. They grow their giving. They become influential. They gain profile. But all the while, the bodies are building up under the bus wheels. You know, Mike Winger, you listen to Mike Winger? I'd encourage you to check out Mike Winger. He's good. But he says this, listen, pastors are not... CEOs pastors are not CEOs a pastor or a better word in English is probably shepherd pastor is from the Latin word for shepherd a shepherd Jesus says is someone who's last of all servant of all not somebody who's looking for profile Not somebody who's looking for notoriety, not somebody who's looking to make a name for themselves. But somebody who's happy to go unnoticed, who's happy to go under the radar, who's happy to think all others in their congregation are better than them. That is the mindset of a shepherd. Brothers and sisters, there's so much self-aggrandizement going on in churches today, sadly. There's so much self-publicity. Jesus said in, in Matthew 6, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you'll have no reward from your Father who's in heaven. You know, a minister of the gospel is a servant of all they prefer them they prefer others before themselves i want to give you a bit of a lesson on church here because this is so important because in these days i believe we're going to need to discern between what is a true church and what is a false church there is a bifurcation that's a good word for it happening in the west at this time there's a parting of paths that's happening and there are many churches that are becoming more and more worldly and as Christians we need to be able to discern between what is a true church and what is a false church because you're not going to be able to look for a sign on the outside of a building anymore you're not going to be able to have the comfort of saying well there's a cross on that building I'll, I'll go in could be just a social club with some religious paraphernalia these are the times we're in and so we need to learn to discern between the true and the false and this desire for greatness that Jesus is talking about that he's rebuking in his disciples ever so gently but he is rebuking them about it this desire this ambition to be great has wreaked havoc absolute mayhem in the church It's done. It it's it's all over the place. Because when ambition gets in the driving seat of our lives, I'm talking about us now, not just the church, but personally. When ambition gets in the driving seat, it becomes the thing that motivates all that we do. It's the weak and needy that are always crushed under the wheels. If you you listen to the Mars Hill, the, the Rise and Fall of Mars Hill podcast. Again, highly recommend that. It's a case study of a church out in the States that just blew up about 15 years ago. It became so popular. A guy called Mark Driscoll. And his theology was pretty solid, if I'm honest. But ambition got in the driving seat. And soon enough, there were bodies under the wheels. People getting crushed. People getting abused. All kinds of things happening. And in the end, it blew up. But this is what happens when leaders... And Christians in general get driven by a desire to be unique, to be great, to be original, right? It's, it's natural to all of us. And what happens is that when that desire gets in the driving seat for greatness, guess what? You only look to serve people who can help you achieve that goal. It's like back scratching. So what you do is you go out of your way to serve those who can help you be more great. You look for the person with a large checkbook. Well, we'll invite them around for dinner. You look for the person with a skill set that can make you look better, that can help achieve your goals. And this isn't just Christian ministers. This is all of you. This is all of us without the, the Holy Spirit in us. And so we end up having churches where people are essentially becoming resources rather than actual image bearers of god that they're looked at like things to be used and the problem is is that those who have nothing to offer those who've got little in terms of finances those who you know are, are not particularly gifted or skillful they're overlooked they're just there to make up the numbers there's no inherent value in the eyes of those leaders. And as I say, these ministries then, because of their desire for greatness, they begin to use people to try and get to that goal. And this is exactly what Jesus was condemning. It's written about as well in, in 1 Peter. Peter writes about it. This is important for you to know, isn't it, what a shepherd is, what a true shepherd is, and what a false shepherd is. Let me, let me read to you from 1 Peter 5 two and three I hope you're not too bored please stay with me (laughs) it says this be shepherds he's talking to pastors be shepherds what's a pastor a shepherd not a CEO not a businessman not a not a leader he's a shepherd okay be shepherds of God's flock who is the flock belong to to God not to the pastor. The flock belongs to God. You don't belong to me. You belong to God. Shepherd God's flock that's under your care. Now the flock, although it belongs to God, has been given to the care of a shepherd. So if you're a Christian, you should be under the care of a true shepherd. Titus teaches this as well. Those Christians who say, I don't need to go to church. I've got a relationship with God. Are running against this scripture right here. You as a sheep ought to be under the care of one one of God's under shepherds. Watching over them, what's that about? It's about prayer. A shepherd is called to watch over the sheep in prayer and caring for them and teaching them sound doctrine. It says, watching over them, not because you must, but because you're willing, as God wants you to be, not pursuing dishonest gain, but eager to serve. Not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. Not to domineer, not to control, but to serve and to love and be an example. Because of this misunderstanding, as I've said, there's an epidemic of abuse happening in churches, I believe, at this time. And there's going to be more that unravels as this year goes by, I believe. We're going to see more big churches crash and burn. And we're going to see an exodus of true Christians coming out of these falling, abusive systems. I believe we're going to see a remnant come out in these days. 1 Peter 4.17 agrees. It says, "For for it is time for judgment to begin where? To begin at the household of God. And just as you remember the Me Too movement and all that that brought, exposing abuse, that's coming to the church. There's going to be a time when abuses get exposed. There's going to come a time when there is justice coming, I believe, in the next couple of years. Because I believe celebrity culture has gotten into the church, hasn't it? This culture of putting people on pedestals and building people up to be more than they should be. Making them into kind of demigods. And these shepherds have begun to use the sheep to make a living out of the sheep to fleece them to abuse them and god isn't happy Now one of my friends says it's all become a bit who's who in the christian zoo <laughs> i like that now i'm not saying every christian celebrity is bad news i'm not saying that because i'm like all of you i'm on instagram i watch a ton of sermons and encouraging you know memes and what have you from celebrity pastors that bless me they're not all bad news but I will say this many of them are many of them are and we just have to be careful and I think for me anyway I think the the proper place the best place for a shepherd is to be under the radar and I think that's the same for you as well is that we shouldn't court celebrity we shouldn't desire celebrity if God allows that in your life then that's okay he'll give you a grace to run with that you know whatever God sends you into he'll equip you for and some of you maybe your calling is to be blue tick right but for many of you it won't and we shouldn't desire that celebrity because Jesus says greatness in the kingdom is not meant it's not measured by riches it's not measured by followers or ministry success but it's measured actually in in the heart in the posture of your life And I would ask this, do you consider yourself, let's be honest, do you consider yourself when you look around in this church to be the least? And by that I don't mean to be like, I'm an awful person. I mean that you look around and you see your brothers and sisters in Christ and you go, they are worthy of my service. You know what? They are, they're greater than I am. I think it was do you remember Wesley, Wesley and Whitfield, the two revivalists. They're friends, weren't they? They had a they had a disagreement. They fell out over theology. And at the end of Whitfield's life, he said, you know what? He said, I don't agree with Wesley on this issue of theology, but I'll tell you this. He'll be closer to Christ than I am in the kingdom of heaven. Right? Preferring others ahead of yourself. That's what I'm talking about. And Jesus then takes a child to himself and says, Who, whoever receives this child in my name receives me and whoever receives me receives him who sent me for he who is least among you all is the one who is great sorry that's Luke actually (laughs) that's not Mark Um, but the point is Jesus takes a child he takes a child he chooses a child and the child becomes the example that he's wanting to make now I want to say this really quickly because we don't get this we don't understand why he'd take a child in the 21st century In late antiquity, in the time Jesus lived, children weren't honored like they are in today's society. They were viewed as like being among the lowest and least honorable, least important in society because they had high infant mortality rates. Um, And so really until a child reached adolescence, it was like, are you going to make it? Are you not? So it's not like it was today. You know, in today's culture, it's wonderful. that Children are loved and honored and protected that um, they don't have to go down the pits anymore like they used to do you know, 50, 60 years ago. Incredible, praise God. I mean, if anything, I think in our culture it goes a bit far and sort of goes to the point where it's like, are we breaking the first commandment here? You shall have no other gods you know, before me. And you know, the child becomes the, the thing that we worship. And uh, you know, so I, I think it's maybe gone even a bit far. But the point being anyway is that Jesus is saying, whoever receives the least, The person who is seen as being the least important by the world, whoever receives them receives me. Can you get that? So think about who it is in your head or in the world's mindset that's the least. You know, we've been going through all sorts of stuff over the last few years with race in the states particularly, you know, with an idea that somebody who's a different colour from you is the least, that they're not worthy they're not as valuable as you are what Jesus is saying to you if you struggle with racism you know what the only way you receive the father is if you receive that person who you believe to be less than and if you receive them then you receive me if not I'm sorry you don't what's cool is that this word for receive I think in English again it's lost because we're like oh okay so receive them as in welcome them say hi on a Sunday afternoon how's it going good to see you praise God I've, I've received the sun. Um, <laughs> but this word for welcome this word for receive them is actually about receiving them into your home it's about hospitality and what do we do when we receive someone into our home we we make them comfortable don't we we feed them you know, I'm looking at Sue because whenever I go over to the mother-in-law's she feeds me up too much But she looks after me and it's at her expense, okay? And so that's what Jesus is saying, is when you put yourself out for those who can give you nothing back. They can't pay you back. That child couldn't help Jesus achieve what he was wanting to achieve. He just loved that child because he loved that child. That's what he's saying, is when we open our hearts and when we give of ourselves to bless somebody that can do nothing for us you know what that's when we're being great that's what greatness looks like like what Jesus did for Zacchaeus the tax collector that everybody hated crooked man taking money off his own people buying himself nice things with it and Jesus says you know what I'm coming to your house today he honoured the least honourable do you honour the least honourable Do you love people who can do nothing for you? That's the measure and standard of greatness. Because in a nutshell, as I finish, this is what Jesus has done for all of you. Guess what? You could do nothing for him. You're just like that little child. But he came, he received you, he put his arms around you. He gave you a seat at his dining table, didn't he? And it cost him his own life. So in this passage right here let us remember that we too were that child. Why don't we stand? Let's close our eyes. I just want to give an opportunity right now if If you want to bring anything to the Lord right now, any conversations that you think you might have had like the disciples that you know weren't great and you just need to bring that to the Lord right now, just do that in your own heart. Just say, Lord, I'm sorry. Maybe if it's a a commitment that you wanna make with God this afternoon, To stop trying to do greatness the world's way. And to start being a servant of all. Maybe it's in your family. Maybe in your workplace. Just to say, Jesus, please help me to learn to prefer others ahead of myself. I want to pursue true greatness. Lord, I want you to renew my mind. I want you to take away any pride, any unhealthy pursuit for greatness. Lord, and help me to just love those who cannot do a thing for me. And I want just to encourage some of you who already do this, who already just have it in your heart to go after those who are viewed as the least of all. And you get scant reward for it. You don't often get told thank you. You don't often get appreciated for all that you do. And the world doesn't look at you as being great. Well, this is for you. Jesus says, you are great. Well done, good and faithful servant. Lord, we we pray that you would put in this church a heart for greatness, for true greatness, Lord. Father, I pray you'd put in us a a growing humility to, to love those who are viewed as the least. Lord, help us in this church to serve one another, to bless one another, to open our homes to one another, to be liberal with our grace and love for one another. And as we do, that you would come in powerfully to our lives, Lord, so that we would never look for the approval of men above the approval of God, But we'd be satisfied knowing that whenever we love the least of all, we are mimicking our Lord Jesus. We're living out what it means to be a Christian. Amen.